Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy and Social Movements podcast. I'm Hilary Anderson, joined with my classmates, Josue Chavarin, Onyeka Otugo, and Carla Magana Figueroa. In 2018, the world-famous professional tennis player Serena Williams made headlines when she revealed that she nearly died in childbirth. Sadly, she is not alone. Her terrifying experience is shared by many Black women in the United States. In the U.S., the maternal mortality rate for Black women is nearly four times higher than their white counterparts. Black women experience a disproportionate incidence of pregnancy complications, and Black infants make up a disproportionate number of infant deaths. Even though there is a clear public health issue here in the U.S., virtually all philanthropic funding is geared at maternal and infant mortality reduction projects outside of the United States. Organizations working to improve these grim statistics domestically are often spearheaded by Black women. One organization working to resolve this disparity is the National Birth Equity Collaborative. The National Birth Equity Collaborative creates solutions that optimize Black maternal and infant health through training, policy advocacy, research, and community-centered collaboration. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with their founder and president, Dr. Joya Creer-Perry. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Joya. I want to get started by asking you what led you to start the National Birth Equity Collaborative? Sure, sure. So um, I am an OBGYN by training and was practicing OB in New Orleans up until Hurricane Katrina uh, and then had the honor of being the director of maternal maternal and child health for the city of New Orleans Health Department. Um, And in that role, I really saw how being a practicing provider is really impacted by policies that are made at a state, local and federal level, especially after Hurricane Katrina. It became really clear to me how our interactions as, as um, providers and patients uh, are really uh, uh, shaped by people who don't know us. And so um, when I finished working, when you work for a mayor, you work at the pleasure of the mayor. So as mayors shift, uh, you find new jobs, which you all will be learning a lot about in policy. And so um, in that move, the, the, uh, came, we decided that there was an opportunity to create a nonprofit separate from government, separate from um, being inside of uh, academia that really focused on Black maternal health and Black infant health um, and wasn't beholden kind of to the constraints of what you're assigned to say or do working inside those other structures, but really free to um, challenge those systems and structures. How would you describe your initial experience fundraising for the National Birth Equity Collaborative? Fundraising is so much built around relationships. Uh, and so really, we spent a lot of time building relationships and understanding that. I knew I came to start a nonprofit with relationships already, having come from working inside of government, working inside of public health. So I knew people, individuals who worked in philanthropy across the United States, especially people who worked inside of healthcare and public health philanthropy. Um, But even in having those relationships, because what we were asking for is to fund work around justice and freedom, that's not something that philanthropy 
typically funds. Um, there's a lot of funding in, for programmatic work. Um, so to do things uh, to ensure that behaviors are modified in healthcare. So if I said that my organization was here to help black moms get to the doctor or exercise or work on um, how they work on their uh, children's mental health and reading, all these things are around individual behaviors of people and not disrupting systems and power, then it's a lot easier to fundraise from philanthropy. Um, talking to philanthropy about things like power and white supremacy and how we have to disrupt levels of power, which includes them. That's a little bit harder to fundraise around, and it's harder for them to wrap their brains around. Many don't have even funding for women designated. We uh, we do a lot to to save babies, and there's funding available for around safe sleep. And, and once again, that's also behavior modification driven, that we should put our babies in safe sleep environments and you know, when you challenge philanthropy and say, it's great to have money f- to tell people to put their baby in a sleep sleep environment, but if you're not challenging the polluters in the community, if you're not challenging why there are rodents in their building, safe sleep does not just, they don't have, uh, does not mean just having a crib and putting the baby alone back to sleep on their crib. It also means you need to be fighting for them to have safe housing, clean air, clean water. That's really safe sleep. So in the beginning, that wasn't a message that resonated very well with a lot of philanthropy. So on that note, you know, I would love to hear about your transition from focusing on Black infant mortality to Black maternal mortality specifically. Yeah. So uh, our original mission and vision was around Black infant mortality. Uh, Most of the, just like the funders, really our, our focus had been on the fact that Black babies are two times more likely to die in childbirth. And even in that, it was revolutionary for us because we were moving away from blaming moms for that and only looking at um, safe sleep and talking about um, premature birth. And premature birth happens because moms are ill. There's nothing that the baby is doing that makes the baby come early. So when you have a baby come early, that means that there's the mom has something's happening with mom. And so that realization plays out a lot when it comes to maternal health. So about six months into our organization um, in our work, we we were able to go to the mother house in Atlanta, which houses Sister Song. um, And Sister Song and the Center for Reproductive Rights brought in about 30 different folks to the room from researchers, uh, people who work in um, ProPublica, New York Times, uh, doulas, midwives, advocates, all, all working around reproductive justice and talking about infant mortality to present to us this data that came uh, from a report from Amnesty International and that they had done together that highlighted that black women were three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts in the United States and that we were the only industrialized nation where that number was going up. So we came together as a group and said, we really want to get ahead of this conversation and push it out there into the media and research and make sure that once again, it's not framed in blaming and shaming black women but really pulling out the data to show how racism, 
patriarchy, white supremacy are the things that are causing this and not just people's choices or genetics or bad behaviors, which is normally how the narrative and how the research is done. So um, as a collective, we decided that and as an individual organization, the National Birth Equity Collaborative added maternal health to our mission and vision, which fits um, since we were really focused on premature birth, which also happens because of racism, classism, and gender oppression, and not because there's anything wrong with black babies. Um, and so it's the same uh, risk factors, it's the same reasons, and so it fits with our mission and our work. And um, so, you know, you talked about hard conversations with funders around white supremacy, mm-hmm. around legacies of, of racism. So what was it like specifically to, you know, to go to the funding community and focus on not just the, the women's experience, but focus on black women specifically? What was that like? You know, there's a there's a space that's hard for funders in general because they tend to they have missions themselves and they have missions that um, in philanthropy, sometimes they are given to them by people who are no longer with us. So a mission might not be as um, appropriate in 2020 as it was when the person passed away, say, in the 70s or 80s, our understanding of even how race works and racism and saying being able to articulate ideas like white supremacy, all those things might not fit under that mission. Um, and so really thinking through, um, for me in, as an individual, talking to funders who would say, I hear you as a, as, a, as a program officer and I get it and I'm super jazzed about how you're framing this work and how we can work differently um, with power building and um, looking at ways to do organizing. Um, but our mission is this very concrete thing that has nothing to do with any of those things. Our mission is to work on women's health um, around choices around, for example, I'm just gonna pick an idea, around choices around access to abortion or birth control, which when you have power and wealth, you don't need philanthropy to help you to do that. You can buy yourself an abortion or a birth control pill. Um, And so the missing step of focusing on the outcome is what a lot of these uh, funders have done for a long time and, and then having to honor the fact that the reason that they've missed that important step because they really didn't truthfully believe that you could actually build power and change the dynamics. And so they're not even, so it was hard for us to sometimes get past the, uh, the, that they have the power to change as well, that they have a huge power. And this COVID moment is really showing how much power philanthropy has to push conversations and to push um, new ideas and to get past whatever their current missions are um, and maybe evolve them. I mean, I'm on organizations, we evolve our missions quite frequently. You have to change with the times. Um, but it, it has definitely still been um, hard because women in general are marginalized. So when you're talking to, and especially in philanthropy, a lot of the folks um, are white women. And so they hear you because they understand being oppressed and they understand being marginalized. So when you say, I want to focus specifically on black women, sometimes they're taken aback by that part. Um, and, and you have to really explain when you only focus on women without talking about racism, what you get is the outcomes we have today in our reproductive health movement, where people can then pull apart and use this breakdown between race and class and gender to separate out our movements and to make us all not have the resources that we need to be able to thrive together. So it does a disservice to all of us when you ignore racism, when you're talking about 
things around reproductive autonomy, bodily autonomy, because that's the core um, of, of how uh, we're oppressed, the, the intersectionality of both race, class, of all of them, race, class, and gender. Absolutely. And just in thinking about philanthropy's role, you know, to your point, philanthropy has such um, such an outsized voice in, in some of our issues today. Mm-hmm. How much do you truly believe philanthropy could move the needle on yeah. on closing the mortality gap if it were yeah. to become a true focus? Yeah, I mean, I think that they um, have proven over and over again that they can take leadership and push ideas in a way that government takes a lot longer to do. Um, and some examples around food security, I mean, philanthropy... F- made the room for having free meals in schools. Like all those are things that were funded originally and ideas that were incubated inside of philanthropy that became normalized to the point that government took them on. So if philanthropy doesn't take the risk and acts in the same lockstep as the market or as government, then who's taking the risk of actually investing in human beings to um, ensure that we close those kind of gaps? So philanthropy is well aware that it has power to move big ideas, and it has moved big ideas. How does your identity as a Black woman doctor interplay with your fundraising efforts? Truthfully, um, it honestly gives me some leverage. Uh, it's privilege, the privilege of being a medical doctor. When I'm talking about justice and social movements, I get a level of credibility because I've attended all the education and all the things that people who value those credentials value. And I'm using the same language that my friends who don't have all those credentials use. So if I say white supremacy, patriarchy, uh, abol- um, abolish all prisons, philanthropy hears it very different from my voice as a physician than they do from my counterparts. Um, I would say uh, the what I believe, truth to be honest, also true, is that they recognize that I have a level of credibility in the black community that if I were a white physician, I would not have. So I get privilege from both things. I get the privilege of my blackness as like showing that I'm down with the people and also the privilege of my credentials so that people who value those kind of credentials see me as someone they want to invest in. What are the types of funding that are being, that you see currently being provided for women's health? Is it more generally non-restricted, multi-year, or is it more the traditional restricted with project-based outcomes type of funding? Yeah, it's almost always restricted with project-based outcomes, no more than two years, sometimes, very rarely, five years. Um, They're very concrete deliverables around outcomes for health outcomes, which is hard because when you've disinvested in women's health for generations and you expect us to fix it something in two years or three years, um, that premise alone is deeply problematic. I don't know anyone who just has non-restricted multi-year, we're going to just invest in your idea of funding. But that would be nice. Do you see the government as stepping up to partner with philanthropy to address this issue? Yeah, I don't think the government ever thinks of itself as needing to step up and partner with anybody. I think that they feel like if you want something, you come to them. So that's private industry, that's philanthropy. So even the framing or is the government stepping up, like it's really more is 
philanthropy using its power to push government. Um, I mean, government is the core. How we created health inequities was through government, through structures and policies that directly came from mayors, from governors, from city council people, from Congress people. So to, we need to replace those people, right? Like we need to get people who are not racist and classist and homophobic and uh, ableist and all those things to be in power and leadership. But as, until we, as we're doing that, philanthropy has an opportunity to also build outside of government and push government and give government tools so that when we, as we're replacing and having this turnover of, of manpower inside of government, we have other things to look to. So I, I don't know of a place where a government's going to a, 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 a donor or a philanthropist and say, hey, help me. In general, um, they assume that philanthropy, that those people are out there to do goodwill and are trying to help as it is. So, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I guess the, I, the, the framing is I don't when saying government stepping up, I mean, government's um, right now under the current administration, we're just we worry we, we just want government not to do harm more harm to us than it already does. So getting them to be the person pushing philanthropy to do something or joining with philanthropy is not how I've seen government work. So we've talked a little bit already about the challenges of, of getting funders to give to uh, black women's health issues. And I'm yeah. curious about the work that you've done and the progress that you've made in persuading funders to give more to women's health issues and particularly black women's health. Yeah, I, I would say my biggest win so far has been the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I mean, I applied to them first around infant mortality work and then around maternal mortality work um, with large academic institutions as sub-I, the subcontractor to these large institutions and got rejected. Um, and then, but over the years, developed relationships, spoke at different conferences, sent them my readings, talked to them about framing, talked to them about this idea of culture of health and what that really means. I mean, um, the, the previous iteration of their culture of health really focused on individual behavior, childhood obesity, making schools, uh, making children exercise more in school. Like none of that was about changing the power that creates the culture of not having health, like not having access to health insurance. Anyway, so um, that uh, now they are building out a whole um, body of work around maternal health and women's health and uh, we're just excited to be able to be a part of that conversation and really push them. And they're bringing in other funders to do the same. Uh, so I, you know, this is a long-term strategy. It requires constant gardening, watering of your garden. And I think some folks who are in nonprofits uh, would like for it to be a faster process. Uh, and I, but I'm, I'm patient. So. And speaking about watering your garden, um, mm -hmm. what do you see for the future of? Uh, the National Birth Equity Collaborative, mm. uh, and what role will funders play? Well, you know, we can go back to that unrestricted multi-year. <laughs> that would be awesome. That's the future I see. <laughs> unrestricted multi-year funding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we had 10 good years of like just imagination building with all these amazing, brilliant Black women that work with us across the United States, we could build all kinds of things. Uh, it would be amazing. Uh, the truth is, I think we're building both some um, relationships with some funders who will give us money for a while um, until we're until maternal health is not the sexy thing, and um, we will. But we're also building up capacity in um, 
uh, getting fee for service work, doing these trainings, building up because we don't trust that philanthropy will stick to investing in equity and justice in women. And so you have to make sure that you have a diversity of uh, income. We've seen philanthropy step in during the time of COVID-19. Um, what are your thoughts on how philanthropy has responded to this crisis thus far? You know, this is honestly very exciting. I think that uh, it's very different, at least for, from where I sit. And I don't know how much of this is just I sit in a different space than I was after Katrina. Um, but they are explicitly calling out racism and gender oppression and classism. They're explicitly saying words. Um, I mean, you've seen CEOs of large um, uh, philanthropy organizations saying we're going to invest $150 million to COVID response and it's going to be going to the people who are on the ground that are most needed. So I do think that their framing is very different. They're, they're trying really hard to not just retract and not give, which is what um, historically happens, especially when the stock market drops. They get really nervous about what money they're going to have and not really honoring that we all know they only give out you know, a couple of percentage points of their monies, any of the endowment on their monies in each year anyway. So if they, if there was ever a time to dip into that endowment and get away from only doing 6%, a crisis is that time. Um, and so uh, you see them doing that. So that's exciting. How do you think the action taken in this crisis so far has compared to, to previous ones? You talked about Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. I think this is the first, at least, for example, at the language around 15 years ago when Katrina hit was we need to get money to help these poor people. Um, and so we're going to give money to the Red Cross to give them um, checks. We're going to give money to uh, the, the government to rebuild houses. But there was no conversation around. And we're going to also undo the structures that caused millions of people to be in harm's way because of climate change, right? There's, there's going to be a conversation around, we're also going to undo the structures that have millions of people without a car and uninsured, and um, it's the last day of the month. And so you hear philanthropy at least talking about that now and really wanting to deeply invest in uh, the root causes of why people are in harm's way and who are the most impacted. Uh, so... Language matters, how they, what they say, what they write, the letters they release to the public, all that stuff is really important. And what do you hope philanthropy will learn from this experience? From the COVID experience, for sure, that um, our, our issues are not siloed. Um, none of us live one issue lives. People, you hear that all the time, but it's such a truth. Like if you only fund in women's health access to abortion and contraception, and you now have all these folks who don't have paid leave, who don't have childcare, who don't have food, then you have to rethink your strategy of abortion and contraception as what's really going to get women's bodies to free. Dr. Joya, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank y'all. This has been fun. And I appreciate it. And you all go forth and change the world. I want to, I can't wait to be like, I knew them when. <laughs> the 
The music for today's podcast was provided by Moby Gratis. We also want to give a huge thanks to our professor, Dr. Megan Ming Francis. To learn more about Dr. Joya Career Perry and the National Birth Equity Collaborative, you can visit birthequity.org.